Hello, I'm Bree Adams, and this is Relatus, episode six. So pretty soon you will hear a conversation I had with another former student of mine named Devon, and we talk about mental health. Now, before we began recording our interview, we had a great conversation about the scope of mental health and mental illness, especially when we're talking about systems and where they intersect, and especially when we're talking about young people and mental health in schools. Um, So we will jump right into the interview, and as always, you will hear from me with a few statistics to ground some things, to back them up. Um, here's Devon. <coughs> Hello, this is Bree Adams, and I'm here with a wonderful young man named Devon, who I'm going to let introduce himself. Uh, hello, my name is Devon. Uh, I was a former student. Yeah. Of Miss Adams, that's it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> Awesome. So the conversation today is about mental health, and that's a really broad conversation. Devon and I were just talking about, like, where do we even begin? So we're going to start out um, hearing a little bit more about Devon's experiences. So as he mentioned, he was one of my former students at North Lawndale, class of 2016. Um, And when he graduated, he chose to attend Grand Valley State University. So now, Devon, I'm just going to ask you, if you don't mind, just kind of talk a little bit about that transition and, you know, make the connections where, where you can. Okay. You can hold that. Um, all right. So, yeah, leaving Chicago, going to Michigan for college, honestly, I felt like it would be a pretty simple transition, actually, but it wasn't. Uh, I was excited, obviously. You know, who just isn't excited when they first go to college? I was not a little bit scared, but I kind of started to realize over... I, I was there for a year and a half, so two, three semesters, and I started to realize that it didn't really fit who I was, and I felt that I wasn't growing as a person. And it, it took me back to a point where I was starting to feel depressed, like pretty bad, and I had more than I more so than I had in recent time. And so I decided to come back, actually, which is why I'm here now. <laughs> but um, the transition to college in general was a weird one for me. In high school, I felt like I could kind of get by pretty easily, and there wasn't too much stress on my mind. But college was a whole new scene. It was completely different, obviously, as everyone told me, but I didn't listen, <laughs> and it stressed me out. And even where I was stressed me out. It was, it was like I was in solitude in a world where, you know, there just was nothing else. It was just school and it was just me. And that's all it felt like. And so it was definitely not an easy transition. And it definitely wasn't one that I expected to go through. But I did feel that coming back and looking back on that, it's enabled me to grow even more than I probably would have if I stayed there still. So. Right, I have a follow-up on that one. So you mentioned that you started feeling depressed, like more depressed than you'd felt in a while. So since our topic is mental health, we're not going to beat around the bush here. So let's talk about depression a little bit. Um, is this Was this something that was new to you? Is this something you had ever experienced before? Uh, yes, this is something that I've experienced before. I've gone through depression majorly one other time, but it's re- relapsed a few times, but nothing too major as opposed to recently when I was, before I decided to leave my college. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so how does feeling depressed differ from feeling, let's say, sad or down? I'd say it, it encompasses a lot more. It's not as specific, I'd say. Sadness, not to, dis, not to disregard anyone who feels, ever feels sad, sadness is a very real thing and it can affect you in many ways. Um, but to feel depressed, it's not just sadness, it's anger, it's, it's so much more. It, it becomes a melting pot of a lot of bad feelings and bad negative emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> definitely, it, it's hard to explain when you think about it because it is a very abstract idea. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, can try, we can try to put in so many things and I'm sure we could for hours, <laughs> but <laughs> it definitely uh, it roots itself in more than just emotion. It roots itself in your daily activities. It roots itself in how you interact with people. It, it doesn't just make you feel a type of way. It affects every aspect. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like um, whereas sadness is a feeling, depression is something that's a little more encompassing and a little more consuming, right? So when you, when did you start noticing or realizing that you were feeling this way, let's say more recently in school at Grand Valley? Um, probably at the end of my first year, after my freshman year. Um, I came home for the summer, I was taking classes in Chicago, I heard Washington actually, and I was stuck with the question of whether I even wanted to go back. And I did end up going back because I guess it's that stubbornness, you know? You know, besides the fact of how it made me feel, besides, besides all of that, I wanted to stick with the decision I made. And, you know, oftentimes as people, we get stuck in that. We, want, we don't want to say, oh, well, you know what? I was wrong. And we get stuck. Who wants to admit that? <laughs> exactly. So I went back against maybe some part of me that was like, I shouldn't. And, you know, it got worse. Mm-hmm. How? Uh, it, uh, my first year, nearing the end, it, was, it got kind of hard for me to will myself to do anything mm-hmm. school-wise. And going back that semester, I felt renewed from Harold Washington. And this is probably part of the reason that I decided to go back to Harold Washington is that it refreshed me. It made me feel better when I went back. But still, when I went back, obviously nothing had changed mm-hmm. for me there, at least. And it just slowly, well, I wouldn't even say slowly, it was a semester. It pretty quickly went back down mm-hmm. to exactly where I was the following, the previous semester. And it just made it hard for me to will myself to do schoolwork. It, I tried joining clubs, and it took my will to want to even go to the club meetings. And, you know, it made me feel even more in solitude than I already was. What about, so can you maybe do some more comparisons to that feeling versus, let's say, like how you were feeling in high school? Let's try to get like a point of comparison. In high school, uh, I've, gone through, I've gone through a few things. Me and you have talked a lot even then. Um, and obviously it did have an effect on me as a student and as a person, but it, it's a very different degree of interference in that, I feel like. In high school, like um, even pertaining to religion, uh, I was having issues uh, telling my mom that you know I didn't necessarily believe in what I was raised in and what she taught me to believe, and you know that weighed on my mind pretty heavily. It stressed me out, and it did affect my schoolwork. But it's weird; it's hard to explain. Like, once again, one of those like more abstract things. It was like the sadness from those and the anger 
tend to be a little more easy resolved. Obviously not at the time. It would never feel that way because everything we go through, it's, gonna, it's, it's a trial. Mm -hmm. So we're never going to look at it as a situation right now and be like, oh yeah, this is easy. It's oh yeah, fine. we'll be fine. I'll be fine soon. It's exactly. Cool. No, it feels like the end of the world mm -hmm. almost always. And I do feel like that's what it is. That's what those issues tend to be. When we look at them, uh, at the moment, they're the biggest things in the world. But when we look back at them and we see other experiences we've had or see other th things other people have experienced, it kind of clicks. You know, there's this separation between something that just normally happens and that may upset you, which is perfectly normal, it's fine, it's, we're human, mm -hmm. and something that seriously will detract you as a human being. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many ways we could go from here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna like stick to one line of questioning for now. So, is it easy for you to talk about depression and feeling depressed? I'd say yeah for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the very root of the first time I, I I'd say I'd really remember feeling depressed was when I lost my sister, mm -hmm. and so that kind of went on for about two years where it was I was kind of stuck in that. And finding closure for that eventually um, really did help me move on past it. And yeah, I'd say once you've been there, it, you know, obviously this doesn't speak to everybody. Some people, they can't revisit it otherwise, you know, and it could only hurt their progress out of it. Um, but for me, I feel like talking about it is good. I feel like every time I can talk about it, it kind of brings up another sense of closure. From your experience, do young people, let's start there, tend to agree? Do you think your feelings are, um, searching for a word, reflective, right, of other people your age? I would say no. And I think that's the big issue, actually, mm -hmm. with this topic, is that people my age don't talk about serious mental issues. They don't. They... They're always up to talk about more light, shallow topics. And obviously this doesn't speak to everyone, mm -hmm. not to generalize it, but that's where our society kind of goes. And I mean, more recently, sure, we've started to hit that iceberg a little bit where we're like, yeah, we need to get people to talk about these topics. Mm -hmm. But the struggle is changing a society that's stuck in their ways. So many people are like, well, we don't want to appear weak, one. So that's the main, that's a big reason, especially, especially young people. Mm -hmm. like. Today, like, no one wants to seem weak. That's the main thing. There's this whole sense of... And I think it even sends more to males, I would say. Like, there's a sense of, uh, what is it, machismo? Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't seem weak. Otherwise, are you really valued as a person? Mm -hmm. um, there's that. There's also the sense of embarrassment. People feel, oh, well, if something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's like, well, that makes me not normal. And it, it's embarrassing. It makes mm -hmm. them nervous. And yeah, so there's a lot of different societal issues, I feel, that have hindered young, younger people from talking about these topics, which that's when you need to deal with it, because then it just grows and evolves into something even more terrifying. Oh my gosh. So, okay, one thing you mentioned that really stuck out to me, well, a few things, right? So first of all, it's this idea that um, you don't want to seem weak. You don't want to seem vulnerable. You don't want to seem like there's something wrong with you. So that all, to me, kind of goes into this idea of a facade, right? Projecting a certain facade. Can you talk a little bit about... Are you 20 now? No, 
No, I turned 20 in June. Okay. Um, so as a 19-year-old, can you talk about social media a little bit? And, you know, I think there's a definite connection here when we're talking about how we portray ourselves and, like, maintaining this facade and then this, like, inability or, you know, unwillingness to talk about things like mental health. Okay. Um, personally, <laughs> I, try to, I try to avoid social media in a certain degree. Like, obviously, you've seen me post a few things on social media, but for the most part, I tend not to read into a lot of the things I see, but I can't help but notice some of uh, my former classmates even, like I see a lot of things they post, but I know them and like that's not who they are, like when you really break it down or boil it down to like their base person. Um, you know, a lot of it is enhancing that macho, strong, I don't need anybody to tell me anything type of personality, but you know, I've known them. I've known them for four years, if not more, and it's not who they are, but they portray it because it's easier to deal with other people when they're when people have that concept of them and even a few of them i've known that have gone through depression or other mental disabilities that you know they don't talk about it because once again they, they're afraid that they're going to be made fun of or they're afraid that it makes them be viewed as a lesser person because there's something quote unquote wrong with them oh. are you going to be a counselor someday possibly Good, I thought so. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, social media, I feel as though I want to... Let's make the jump a little bit, okay? So <clears throat> we're talking about it's easier to just kind of like front on social media than to really acknowledge maybe some of your deeper feelings, right? Because it's that's not the norm and you'd kind of be like bucking against what your peers are doing. What could schools do at an elementary level or at a high school level to try to combat that? Like, what should schools be doing? What have you seen happen in schools that was either good or bad? Like, let's talk about that. Well, um, speaking from my experience at North Londo, we didn't talk about that ever. That wasn't something we talked about in court in any curriculum, in any of the classes. We covered a, we covered a few things, but like, never was it really stuck in there. Like, I know you've done a few things to help try to educate us about that when you were there. And I know Ms. Diaverso has, for example. And I mean, even groups like Louder Than Bomb attribute to that type of teaching. But I think schools need a course that is specifically targeted toward things like this. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, we don't learn. I mean, yeah, we, we see people go through it, but we never really learn what they're going through. I mean, obviously, you can't get mm -hmm. too deep into that because everyone's different. Everyone experiences different things. but it'd be good if everyone had a foundation of knowledge for it. It's kind of like even GV, for example, it's a, I forgot what it's called, a liberal education school. So they, they don't, it's not like liberal arts courses, but it's, they give you a certain course load that is necessary to graduate. You have to have a foundation in every subject, essentially. It covers the wide bases. So whatever, you can go into anything, theoretically. You have a little bit of here, a little bit of there. And I think that's what high schools need, especially because, I mean, those four years are really volatile. And, you know, everyone always talks about, yeah, these are the four years that set you up towards your future. Well, yeah, we should treat it like that. We need to be ready to go into the world. Mm -hmm. So this, like, what you're talking about is something I would probably tag as, like, social-emotional learning in a sense, right? Like, who am I? What am I good at? How do we get along with each other? Like, let's learn how to take other people's perspectives and blah, blah, blah. But I think it also goes into this idea of stigmas, too, like we kind of mentioned earlier, right? So... When people don't have facts, 
and information, it's really easy to make assumptions about mental illness, right? And to say that like, um, you know, there's, I guess there's not an understanding of it if you've never been taught, right? And I guess the question is who's teaching young people about this? And it sounds like the answer is no one, I don't know, social media, the media, like gathering what they see around them. Um, so what do you think about, like, let's talk about stigmas in, you know, you went to North Lawndale College Prep, which is a predominantly African-American school. We talked about stigmas around your kind of like age group, your demographic, also around gender, but let's talk about race and ethnicity. Like, are there any stigmas that you have experienced or noticed or seen related to mental health? Absolutely. Um, I mean, regardless, besides the fact that younger people don't talk about depression and other mental issues, African-Americans, it's even less likely. So being both, it's always been kind of a struggle. I mean, even in my own family, and I come from a mixed family, African-American and Mexican, neither of those cultures seem to talk about it as much as they should. And a lot of them go through it. Even um, my mom never really talked to me about it, and I didn't talk to her about it. I mean, I guess that's how I was, you know, I guess it was in a sense inevitable for me to be that way. But eventually, you know, it did. Throughout high school, when uh, I was doing a lot of the bomb, I wrote a piece about my, my depression. And, you know, that's kind of where it all started to stem from, for at least me and my family. And later on down the line, probably more recently, actually, my mom told me that she'd been depressed. And, you know, she didn't even realize she was depressed. And I think that's where the issue lies as well, Back, kind of tying back to the whole education thing. My mom didn't even really understand what depression was. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she's almost 40. So, like, it's insane to think about. It's not just the fact that young people won't acknowledge it. It's that maybe they can't. And I mean, it extends to everybody, obviously, because mm-hmm. as you grow up, maybe things don't change as they should. Mm-hmm. And like my ethn, my eh. <laughs> my two cultures, they are very, I guess, set in those ways again. Like we were talking about the whole needing to seem strong and tough, and I think it does come from a sense of oppression, mm-hmm. maybe in the pa- you know in the past and even now. Um, you know the the there's something to prove, in a sense. So, I, it, pertaining to race specifically, um, Caucasian people or um, um, in society, I mean, we tend to acknowledge that, yeah, that there's a possibility of mental illness there. But then in African Americans, we're so stuck in not admitting anything's wrong that that's not true for them. And I'd say the same goes for Latinos too, from what I've seen, at least from my own experience. I've had family members who, have gone through depression, I had no clue. And I mean, we were close at one point. Like even people I've been close with, people I haven't been close with, you know, I've heard or I've talked to them and they've told me and you know, it's kind of insane to think about because that's another trap we fall into, I feel, is that we don't think about it enough. Mm-hmm. We, we acknowledge that maybe it exists, maybe it's out there, but more than likely several people you know are going through it at any given point. Mm-hmm. I think you made a great point it's this idea that how can how can we acknowledge something if we don't necessarily know what it is and we don't know what it is because no one's acknowledging it right so i like find myself sometimes like getting trapped in this like circular knowledge like the cycle of poverty the school to prison pipeline right like there are so many examples of this in our society that something is like both a cause and effect of the same problem um whew. Okay, I am going to take a moment to jump in here. Uh, Devon and I spoke for so long, uh, it was inevitable that I needed to cut some things out. So I'm going to take this opportunity um, just to offer some some backup 
to the conversation we've had thus far. Um, I really want to focus right now on social media and just some statistics around young people and mental health. Um, So first, just to kind of put it in perspective, according to a 2015 study, teens spend an average of nine hours a day using media. So it's a pretty broad categorization, um, but most of it is digital media, right? So I want to think about development specifically. We already know that excessive technology use has been linked to things like increased stress, insomnia, anxiety, depression. So I want to take a second just to kind of conceptualize this, right? So think about our brain. It's hardwired to filter information, especially visual information. We're inundated with so much all day that our brain needs to be able to discern which information is the most important, right? So this is kind of a compulsive subconscious thing that our brain's doing. And this is a carryover. This is evolutionary evolutionary. I think this is the second time I've struggled with that word. Um, But anyway, right, like we had to decide which visual cues were important so we weren't eaten by a predator. Um, And, you know, eventually began to realize which visual cues are less important. So translate that to today and think about the influx of images and text that the internet and things like smartphones are constantly portraying, right? The brain is adaptable and it learns to keep up kind of with this constant flow. It learns to actually expect an overwhelming influx of information. But because of that, it kind of loses the ability to focus on one thing for a long time because it's constantly expecting new info. So this phenomenon has been called novelty addiction or popcorn brain. Um, You know, smartphones place this at someone's fingertips. So our brain struggles to sift through this constant flow of info and we begin to live in a state of subconscious stress and anxiety. So especially, you know, we're talking about young people and developing brains, right? Um, I would argue that young people nowadays are more overextended than in previous years, right? Because any downtime is consumed with keeping tabs on social media, right? So that's this idea of just hyper-connectivity. And that can lead to emotional depletion, right? We also, when we think about the connection between social media and mental health, you know, Devon and I touched on the idea of false representation, right? And fronting on social media, putting up a facade. Um, you know, I've talked about this idea with educators before, um, but increased screen time leads to a lack of face-to-face interaction. So communication is more crafted and it's done behind the privacy of a screen. Right? So I think social media also leads to an illusion of control, right? So related, when everything is 
crafted in order to convey a certain image or a certain message in real life we don't have that much control so that can lead to an inability to tolerate uncertainty right a lack of coping skills or resiliency you know there's also this addictive quality of social media and social approval we begin to need more and more and inevitably there are lulls and then when we're not receiving that approval it leads to self-doubt low self-esteem anxiety right so teens who spend more time on smartphones and social media report an increased incidence of mental health issues than those who have more face-to-face interactions like sports or groups or activities um there's a survey called the youth risk behavior survey and it takes place every couple years and uh there's a pretty cool interface that you know lets you look at a lot of statistics about young people in Illinois specifically. So the last data set is from 2015. Um, And I just wanted to pull out a few statistics just to kind of, you know, give you an idea of about how many young people who are reporting things that have to do with mental health. So, you know, for instance, regarding the statement I felt sad or hopeless in, you know, the 12 months leading up to this survey. Overall, 30% of young people said yes. And that's higher among females generally. That's about 37%. And among Latinos, that's about 35%. So when it comes to young people who have seriously considered suicide, uh, 16% of young people said yes they had previously considered suicide and that's higher among african-american and latinos and especially higher among females in general about 19 percent when it comes to actually making a plan to complete suicide 14.5 percent of students said they'd seriously said they'd made a plan um you know and getting even more specific in terms of illinois students who have attempted suicide at least once we're at almost 10 percent, 9.8 percent so that figure is seven percent for white students 12.6% for Latino students and 15.2% for African American students. So this is how many students have attempted suicide. So when we're talking about trends in data, one interesting piece of information I found is that uh, first of all, African American teens are more likely to attempt suicide. So that's 8.2% versus 6.3% nationally. Between 1993 and 2012, the rate of suicide, and this is completed suicide, doubled among African American children ages 5 to 11. Okay, so now it's at about 2.5 per million children. 
And in that same time period that it doubled for African-American children between the ages of five and 11, it actually declined for white students. Um, so again, talking about trends, hospital admission for suicide attempts doubled in the past 10 years. Uh, the Center for Disease Control reported that the suicide rate for teen girls has hit a 40-year high as of recently. Um, it doubled among girls and increased 30% among boys between 2007 and 2015. Um, suicide is the number one killer of teen girls worldwide and the number two of teens in the U.S. Number one is accidents. Um 90% of young people who die by suicide had a diagnosable mental health condition uh, at the time, and about 80% were reported to have given clear warning signs. So another statistic for consideration is that the number one risk factor for suicide is a previous attempt. You know, the reason I mention these statistics is because it's obvious that issues like mental health and suicide affect a good amount of young people. And I think, you know, Devon did a great job of really emphasizing the idea of how important education is. And, you know, that's something we're going to come back to. Um, but before we return to the interview, um, thinking about the social media connection. So in the past decade, anxiety overtook depression as the most common reasons that young people sought mental health treatment. One third of adolescents are affected by anxiety. Um, and extending that to the college level, the post-secondary level, a 2016 survey by the American College Health Association found that 62% of undergrads reported experiencing overwhelming anxiety. And as a point of comparison, there was a 1985 poll done on college freshmen asking them if they felt extremely overwhelmed. And in 85, 18% of college freshmen said yes. Now, 41% of college freshmen are saying yes. You know, as I'm reciting some of these statistics, I, I can't help but picture, um, you know, certain acquaintances, fellow educators, maybe family members who I've had conversations about the current, about, you know, this generation of young people with. And um, I think sometimes there's this feeling that they're enabled or entitled or soft, right? And I think related to that is this idea that, you know, they just need to toughen up. I'm not going to argue the, the merits of that because I think there's a lot of gray here. But at the end of the day, let's say that's true. If we don't provide education to combat some of these new influences like social media, so if we don't provide education and try to increase students' capacity for coping and resilience, 
this trend isn't going to stop or change. An interesting conversation I've had with a few people lately, you know, is about social media, right? And as educators, is there a place for it in the classroom? And I think too often it's a lot easier to not touch it as a teacher, not even address it. I mean, so many schools, classrooms, whatever, have policies against cell phone usage. So, like, students, young people, begin to see things like social media and their smartphones as totally unrelated to education. And when that happens, they're not taking advantage of some of the benefits that social media could bring, right? Which is like making connections and learning. I mean, having so much information at their fingertips. And we know young people are social creatures. And, you know, we know social media is a big thing. So I think there's so much room in this conversation of, teachers and other adults being able to model some of the ways that technology can be used for educational purposes and positive interactions. And if we can do more of that, it seems likely that might mitigate some of this bad stuff. So I could go on about this for forever. Um, uh, but I before I jump back into the interview, Devon and I had a conversation. This, When we were meeting, it was the morning after uh, the shooting in a Florida school occurred. Um, so I, I cut out a lot of the conversation we had about that. You know, while I think it, it's an important conversation to have, what I really wanted to highlight was Devon's response to my question about what can schools do to address this? We don't have knowledge or we believe we have knowledge that we don't actually mm. have. And that's something that more from Socrates. Mm, I like that. Um, and pertaining to this specific issue, I mean, yeah, people don't understand it. I mean, I'd say, say he did have mental issues, even if he didn't. If he was educated on them, maybe he could would have considered something he did. Maybe there would have been some different um it would have been a different path that this took it wouldn't have ended how it did or happened how it did and you know, we could have been avoided maybe maybe you couldn't but why not try i mean we should at least put the effort towards trying to prevent things like this and i know schools tend to try to keep their students safe but there's a difference between taking measures after something has happened and taking preventative measures mm. and i think that's where that's where we're lacking right now. Is we don't have enough preventative measures. We don't teach people what they need to understand. I'm sure we can we can put metal detectors up in every school. Sure, that's cool. I mean, it's gonna keep guns out there in theory. In theory, because you know there's always ways around it. Um, but it's not just restricting a person. You need to teach a person to really get them to understand. No one's gonna understand if you're just constantly berating them. You need to help them understand. You need to teach them. I always go exactly where you just went when, when it comes to a solution for anything, right? The solution is more education. I can always find a way to like bring it back to that. So I really, you know, I'm definitely gonna like think about the way you said that in the future because I think it, you hit the nail on the head. 
So then I start thinking, okay, so let's say a school has this education in place and staff are trained and you know students are a little bit more aware of these warning signs to look for. Um, and let's say someone notices something, a counselor, whoever, and you know, like makes a call, right? So now this is the next level. You know I'm obsessed with systems. This is where I feel like there's an entire other gap that our country is facing. So like what exists for someone like a, a young person who is like experiencing mental health issues like in terms of community support and is that community support equitable, right? Does every young person have the same access to that? Uh, let's like talk about Chicago. Do you know much about like mental health access in Chicago? Do you remember hearing anything or any like, uh, this is not a quiz, I promise you won't get graded. I had a lot of, um, I used to, mm -hmm. before I went off to Michigan, I had a lot of um, resources for that, like mm -hmm. numbers and locations where you can go mm -hmm. to talk to people. And I mean, even in schools, they, obviously they have counselors <laughs> and that helps a lot. But there, I feel that the issue is, um, it kind of falls back to the societal issue where people are scared. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as people, we live a lot by fear. And so we tend not to do things that maybe would be good for us because of our fear. And, you know, obviously we think it's good for us because we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're scared or, we're, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. You just clicked something. So living in this fear, like you're discussing, is there a connection between that and how many mentally ill individuals we incarcerate instead of treat? Absolutely. I mean, we fear what we don't understand. And obviously... There's been a lot of advances in how we understand mental illnesses, but we don't understand them, I'd say. I mean, they, they vary so often, and they vary so much even in the same mental illness that do we ever really get it? I mean, the same treatment may work for one person, but it won't work for the next person, even if they are going through the same exact mental illness, because the causes are different. The What attributes to it are very different. And, yeah, we incarcerate a lot of you know people who have mental illnesses, and it's not really fair, because... We're putting them away because we don't understand that we don't know how to help them. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, oh, well, we'll just put them all in one place. I mean, we're treating them like criminals in a sense, which that's not going to help. It's going to mm -hmm. hurt more than it's going to help because then, once again, it's kind of like even for my example with how I was feeling isolated, people are going to feel isolated. When you get isolated, it compounds everything that's going on in your mind. And if you have a mental illness, that's going to compound as well. And then where does the progress go? And not to say that, sure, maybe there, there have been cases that, yeah, it's worked for people, but there's always going to be cases for both sides, but that doesn't detract from the main fact that is it really helping more than it's hurting? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we need to find a balance, but we don't. And we continue to incarcerate mental, mentally ill people because we don't know. Mm -hmm. Right, and like, again, you, you make this point that... Um, there's not a manual that says this is how to fix depression. First you do this, then you do this, da 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 da, now you're better, right? It's contextual, it's dependent on every individual. In some people, it's, it's more neurobiological and there might be a certain type of drug that can help them. Other people might not have the same reaction to a drug and might be experiencing depression because of a trauma they've experienced or because, you know, whatever the case may be. But the idea is it won't be solved by, let's say, like throwing all these people in jail where they're not getting individualized service, right? Even if these people commit a crime, there has to be another option where they get 
individualized service like I'm thinking case management right where it's like okay you might need a little substance abuse help and this is a place that's convenient to your home that we can provide that but you also need help with housing right it's just like the idea of all of this intersection I know that mental health underlies so much of it um yeah no absolutely yeah yeah um speaking on the individualized care like yeah I mean it just to con- just compare it, it's a lot like the school system. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of ironic that you know we're speaking on these two topics. Yes. Um, they marry each other in a similar fashion. Students, you tend to fall behind a lot because the education is broad, and you know they do, obviously they do that because oh we want they want to reach as many students as possible, but by doing that they lose so many as well, and it's, it's yeah it's disbalanced. Mm-hmm. And just same way with treatment for people who have mental illnesses. There's not a balance of like the individualized care versus the generalized care, and we're not going to make enough progress keeping things as broad as we do. And obviously, yeah, it's more work to do individualized care, but it's also necessary. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you now. Did you ever feel like high school lost you? Oof. Uh, yeah. I had probably more in my junior year. I felt really detached from it. It didn't feel like, it didn't feel like it was for me. I was, you know, an education is for you. It didn't feel like an education was for me in high school, especially my junior year. I just, I don't know, junior was just a weird mm-hmm. year for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's when I started really thinking about these things, and it didn't feel like, obviously there were teachers and staff who cared, and, you know, it was very evident that they did. But the education itself, not the, not the teachers, mm-hmm. the education itself, wasn't geared for me. It was geared for someone, just a general person. What makes junior year different from other years in high school? I guess it's kind of the year when I really started to reflect on myself mm-hmm. for moving towards college. Uh, you know, everyone talks about how um, your first two years, yeah, it's kind of, you're getting used to it. You're getting your footing and you're starting that transfer into adulthood. But junior year is when it really starts to hit. It's that it's the second half. Mm-hmm. You're running. You're running at home, and you need to figure that all out. And yeah, senior year was a big year. It was last year of high school, but it didn't feel as important. I mean, junior year was where a lot of your your classes were focused. Your grades really mattered, mm-hmm. and we took the ACT that year. Um, so senior year was more just I'm finishing it off now. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm cleaning up. But junior is when it felt like it all kind of got real. You know, the reason I asked that was the first thing that popped into my head was ACT, right? You're talking about like you felt like, let's say the instruction, not the teachers, but the instruction wasn't for you. And I can't help but feel like there's this pressure to teach to the test and blah, blah, blah. And like, how much do standardized tests really engage and inspire students? So that's why I asked that question. But then I think you brought up this you know, kind of like a complimentary point that in addition to that, you also have to make some decisions that you may not feel equipped to make yet, right? So I think the combination of those two things, it makes a lot of sense that you started feeling that way around that time. I've never quite thought about it that way before. Yeah, and I think an, an issue with that is that we do um, tend to teach towards testing, not teach towards understanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, even as a student, I can admit that there's been plenty of times, numerous times, probably more times than I can count, that I've 
studied for the sake of passing a test, not for the sake of understanding the content of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that last minute cram when you need to make sure you know these answers for the next few hours. Right, that's it. Just that's so it. you can like spit them back in a few. Yeah, just the next few hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, you know, as a student, I can recognize that that's something I've always done. And not, well, not always, but I've done very often. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who's been a student at some time or another has fallen into that trap, right? It's like the idea of, you know, I think this kind of fits into extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Am I doing this because I just want a grade and I want it to look at my transcript and I want it to college? Or am I doing this because I actually care about this material and I think that it's going to help me somehow in my life? Or I think it's going to further expand my brain and my thinking. Like, Hi, it's me again. This is the last time I will interject with some statistics before I let uh, Devon kind of take us home. Um, But I want to take this opportunity to make some bigger systemic connections related to previous conversations, you know, I've had for this podcast. So first of all, in communities where there are higher amounts of violent deaths and we've talked about this uh in prior episodes um there's a higher likelihood for anxiety depression ptsd in fact these neighborhoods yield the highest number of hospitalizations for anxiety depression and self-medication uh if you think about it every shooting affects so many people um So, this is the area where I could go really hard, but I'm going to try to just sprinkle in a few statistics to get you thinking, and we'll talk more about this in Season 2 of Relatus. But in 2011, in fall of 2011, Rahm Emanuel proposed closing 6 out of the 12 mental health clinics in the city. There were no community hearings, no studies, no task force. Um, You know, we also know that between 2009 and 2013, the state cut $187 million in mental health funding. Um, But so this proposal passed unanimously in city council. I want you to think about that for a second. Mayor proposes closing six out of 12 community mental health facilities with no community hearing, no studies, no task force. It passes unanimously. Now, since then, some city council members have backtracked. um, But the interesting timing with everything was that this happened the same time that ward maps were being drawn. So the very future of these individual city council members, um, like they felt, well, I don't want to speak for them, but it's been alleged that the reason this passed unanimously is because no one wanted to stir the pot. They, they wanted their ward maps to be drawn in ways that benefited them. 
So anyway, in spring of uh, 2012, these clinics are closed. Half of Chicago's mental health clinics are closed. Okay. Um, meanwhile, uh, 2014 public health assessment states that there are inadequate citywide mental health structures in Chicago. So when I'm mentioning this figure, six out of the 12 clinics, there are obviously a lot of organizations. There are actually currently 400 clinics or agencies that offer, you know, mental health support, violence prevention, substance abuse. Um, but these clinics that were closed were city-run mental health clinics, outpatient clinics that served about 3,000 people. Okay. So... You know, kind of continuing the conversation about lack of access to mental health services, um, you know, the issue really is the number of staff members and clinicians versus the volume of individuals in Chicago who need the support. So there are wait lists no matter where you go. Uh, Alexa James, she's the head of the National Association for Mental Illness, is quoted as saying there's nowhere you can call and get in tomorrow. So during the two-year budget impasse, uh, a third of the mental health organizations had to reduce their client load. Uh, the state still owes local mental health providers over $142 million. And even though there's a new budget that reinstated funding, Illinois still has over $14.6 billion in backlogged bills stemming from that budget impasse. So in terms of where do we go from here and what are some solutions, there are a few things being done initiative-wise now that I want to quickly talk about. Uh, first of all, there's a $1.3 million grant that was given to uh, Chicago Public Schools to address trauma, and this is given to 10 high schools um, in neighborhoods where this is seen as most prevalent. Another initiative is a $5 million federal grant, federal grant to build trauma resiliency in the community, and this can, you know, they can go about it from a few different angles. So that's like, I just mentioned, you know, $6 million worth of initiatives, right? And we talked about all of the money that's been cut from mental health. So it's really great that there's a grant given to the schools to talk about trauma and this federal grant to build trauma resili resiliency in different capacities. But let's talk about money in the city of Chicago. 
I have so much to say, but I'm going to offer one anecdote now that I've thrown out a lot of dollar signs just to kind of put it in perspective. So TIFF funds are, they exist to spur development in and near economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, right? So you've probably heard of TIFF funds. Um, the Better Government Association in Cranes of Chicago investigated one small example of how the city funneled Southside TIF funds to fund a fifty-five million to fund sorry fifty-five million dollars worth of improvements to Navy Pier. We would all agree that Navy Pier is not in or near an economically disadvantaged neighborhood, so. How, you might ask, were these funds used? Um, it's a long and pretty fascinating story, but it has to do with a fake hotel at McCormick Place because, hey, McCormick Place is kind of like the South Side, so we could say that's near an economically disadvantaged neighborhood. has to do with some shady uh, banking and some kind of like shell corporations, but at the end of the day, this $55 million dollars, that was set aside to spur development in and near economically disadvantaged neighborhoods went to Navy Pier improvements. And we're talking about a paltry $1.3 million to CPS. I'm going to talk a lot more about uh, budget allocation and TIF funds during episode nine, which is kind of like the, the school episode when we really get into some of the numbers so we have to leave it at that for now um i will be back next month to have a conversation about sexual and reproductive health and its implications especially for those who interact with young people um but now i'm gonna let devon take it home you might notice that we tried to wrap up like three different times but he kept adding just like really important it was hard it's like we could have talked about this forever um that's all from me see you next month do you have anything in particular that you feel like now that we've had this conversation might resonate like any stories or examples or um, actually right before i left gb mm -hmm. there was mm -hmm. uh who did i talk to i forget her name because actually was really nice to know. She was kind of going through a lot of the same things I was going through, but with you know my depression and kind of like losing my will to do things. And I guess that's when it kind of clicked. It gave me that that aha moment to come back to Chicago. Um, it was that I'd been keeping myself so stuck where I was that I lost all my motivation. I I drained myself, and obviously, you know, we don't do things in order to hurt ourselves purposely. Mm -hmm. You know, we think we all, we're always doing what's the best for us. And, you know, I thought, you know, going to university, trying to, you know, muscle through it would be fine. And it wasn't. It, it, uh, I think it set me back a bit. And, yeah, I lost a lot of my will to be a student, to learn, to grow. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of poetry. In high school, like I even lost the will to write. Like I wasn't even writing anymore, and I guess that also attributed to me feeling even worse because that was mm -hmm. that's my release, that's my escape. Mm -hmm. I know. So I think you described well that feeling of like 
I know that writing poetry makes me feel better, but I can't even write poetry. I should be able to. It's my fault that I can't. I can't even help myself feel better. Does that kind of like resonate? Yeah, I mean, it's like um, I need to write to reestablish my will, but I don't have the will to, to, to write oh. to establish it. And it becomes a vicious cycle of the two constantly you know, being on point with who, where you are in life. And then you get kind of stuck until you decide to leave that. And I guess that's where we, that's where we have the hardest decision. Um, leaving GV was a really hard decision for me. And with it was leaving that cycle. Hmm. Even in the, what, month or month and a half I've been back, I've been feeling like a new person. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, lifting my spirits. I'm not, I'm starting to write again. Um, I've been kind of, I've been a little, been a little heavy, but I've started to write more again, and I don't know, it's like, and it's, it inspires you once you get out of that cycle, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, I wish and I hope that so many more people can get to that point, but I guess, you know, that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, we need to get people to that point, and we're not. Oof. Like, it doesn't sound like that was an easy decision for you at all, and I'm proud of you for kind of being open to that vulnerability and making that change. Right. Yeah, I feel like it's important that we do. I mean, we've constructed this society where we've been so stuck in making sure everyone else thinks we're okay. That, you know, we, you know it's okay to not be okay. I mean, um, you know, I just, someone close to me just lost uh, a family member and it was hard on them. And, you know, they're, they're, they stick to this, this idea that they need to be okay. Mm-hmm. They need to be okay because they, they have this concept that life moves on. And yeah, it does, sure, that's fine. But it's okay to not be okay. You need to express that. You mm-hmm. need to let that out because it'll eat away at you. I feel like I want to get that on a bumper sticker. It's okay to not be okay. <laughs> um, but I think too, right, it's this idea that like, I keep, I can't, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to articulate this, so I might need your help, right? But everyone around is trying to look like they're strong and they've got it figured out. And because everyone's doing that, that's what we see other people doing. So when we feel ways that don't mesh with that, it's a very easy way to judge ourselves for being crazy or wrong or weak. But if every other per not every person, but if so many other people are feeling that way, it's just like this huge curtain that's covering everyone and everyone's pretending they're fine and like trying to put on this happy face or this facade and they don't want to be different, you know, but the, at the end of the day, like what you're talking about must feel so incredibly validating for so many people. Like, oh my God, I felt that way too. And like, how good does it feel to feel validated and to know that other people feel the same way that you feel? And I mean, uh, kind of going back to philosophy, uh, Socrates, he had this idea that, I'm not gonna get too many people, that that Socrates becomes a maze in himself. Um, But he does speak on why he's wise, or why he's not wise, I guess I should say. He um, states that, the reason people have issues, and I'm, this is going to become an analogy to this topic that we're talking about. Be- people have issues because they think they know things when they don't know anything. He's wise. Socrates says that he is wise because he knows that he doesn't know anything. And it translates perfectly into this idea of you know, mental illnesses and how we regard them. We always, consider, we always 
think that we know, oh yeah, this other person, if I look at them, they're not feeling that way that I feel inside. So I shouldn't feel that way. And it kind of gets to us. But if we, you know, become that idea of Socrates, that knowing that we're not okay, that's important. You know, <laughs> instead of thinking that we know we're okay because mm-hmm. everyone else is, we should know that we're not. And, mm-hmm. and acknowledge that as a society. I mean, we have plenty of people out there who don't, who can't, they're stuck. And I feel like we're responsible to help. God, I just like I can't help but picture you know like we're at Harold Washington Library right now a bustling street below us so I picture all these people just like carrying an armload of like groceries and bags and da 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 and they're like trying to hold it all up and like make make everything okay but it's like Socrates just kind of like put it all down and he's like there's no need to carry this all let me just walk free so that I can like maybe like help other people carry some of their stuff I don't know that's just what you reminded me of right now. No, yeah, I can see that. I can see it. Uh, the, the imagery of it too. I mean, it makes sense. I didn't even know where it was going to go when I started, but I knew there was something there. I mean, the imagery fits. We carry a lot around as people. It weighs on us constantly, even when we don't think it does. It's still hitting us subliminally, and it's not going to be an easy task to get people to acknowledge things like this. But it's an important one. And you know, this even speaks more to Confucius. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had this idea of being virtuous. Well, he didn't use the word virtuous, but the idea of being a virtuous person is called a rem. It's really reaching a certain state of being, and he never reached it. He, and he stated he never reached it. And he said, well, he conflicts himself a lot. He says that you can, but he also says that you can't reach rem. He says, in one passage, he, in one of his analects, he states that rem essentially is unattainable. It's not something that we can actually reach, but we should still strive towards it. And I feel like that speaks very true to how we deal with people. We need to strive to make everyone feel like they can share this feeling inside of them. We need people to understand that they can, even if, hey, maybe we can't fix everybody. Maybe we can't help everybody, but why shouldn't we try? So you know what we do? We have conversations like this, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) At Harold Washington Library, in the study room, and we let the world know it's okay to talk about it, and it's okay to not be okay. What other words of wisdom do we have for folks? Um, It's difficult, but you need to get it out into the world. You know, know, my, my mom always would tell me, to make a list of things that I want to do in life, list a goal. And the reason was because when you put something into this world, when you write it out and you put it into the world, it only becomes that much more true. And when something, like we get so stuck in the concepts in our mind that, you know, we don't act on any of our thoughts and maybe that's a good thing sometimes. <laughs> but when we put them on paper and we bring them into the real world, they become real and they become more concrete in what we believe we can do. and. I believe that, I mean, ideally, we'll be able to reach a point where everyone feels safe and comfortable in the fact that they can be understood and helped. And, you know, they don't have that fear of being weak. They don't have that fear of being judged because if something's wrong, it should be helped. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same like if you see an elderly person fall down, you're not going to ignore them. You're going to help them. I mean, even if you're not elderly, even if, you know, you... If you just have an issue, I mean, it's, it's human. Mm-hmm. We all need to become more human. I feel like we've detracted <laughs> away from that. 
I want to ask you now what what kinds of things you envision for yourself in terms of you know helping others because you know when we got in you shared with me that you were considering electrical engineering but recently have been starting to kind of question that and move away from that so what's next for Devon? Um, as of now because of my poetry uh, I'm planning to be a creative writing major um, but once again I mean you know I'm well into the expression of who I am and so I've also been considering like art, like different types of art majors, but at the same time, I was, I, like I mentioned earlier, I was considering, I've been toying with the idea of going into teaching or, you know, counseling even. I mean, there's, like, it's like uh, in high school, well, looking back at high school, I should say, um, I don't think I'd be, I don't think I would have gone through it without, like, people like you, Mr. Brown, Ms. Diverso, like, you guys helped me so much that... I don't think I would have made it through high school without you guys. And I want to be that person for someone else. You're, you're being that person I just feel like for someone else's right now, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. And I just feel like that's important. I mean, you know, we tend to think we need to be a one-man army to take on the world, but it's never, that's never the truth. We need a, a real army of people 